If you invited someone to your home for dinner and they stopped halfway there, what would you think? That they didn't care? That they didn't really want to be with you? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. In our podcast today, we'll see how that's a little like what it is if we accept Jesus to be our Savior, but then we quit God's plans for us only halfway to where He wants us to be. Our podcast this week is entitled The Romans Road Part 2, The Rest of the Journey Home. Last week, we talked about the Romans Road, the popular term for how Paul describes God's plan of salvation for fallen humanity. And we also looked at the meaning of some of the theological terms that describe it, propitiation, atonement, justification, redemption. If you haven't listened to that particular podcast, please do go back and listen to it because it's a a really good, I trust, summary of what it means to become a Christian. But once we've arrived at the point of salvation where we know we're going to be spending eternity with God, that we are safe from, as the Bible puts it, the wrath to come, from hell, damnation, all of those very real things that we don't want to talk about, once we're saved, from that, we sometimes forget that that is really only the start of our relationship with God. Having been bought with Jesus' blood and death on the cross and redeemed from all these things, we're no longer our own. We belong to Jesus and we should live for him. Now this whole process is what the Bible refers to as sanctification or being conformed to the image of Christ. Now let me first share with you before we get into our passage today some other verses on being conformed to the image of Christ and why it's so important. In the NIV in Romans 8:29 it says, "For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his sons, so that he would be the firstborn" among many others. And in the Phillips, it puts it this way. Moreover, we know that God, that those who love God, who are called according to his plan, God, in his foreknowledge, chose them to bear the family likeness of his sons. Now, one little parenthesis here. The, the passage of God's foreknowing and predestination and all that thrown in there, This is not about God choosing certain people to be saved and others to not be saved. That is not what it says. What the passage says is that those who have trusted Jesus as Savior, God's plan for them, his predestination for them, is then for them to become like his son. Again, let me let me read over this again. Moreover, we know that those who love God who are called according to his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. God, in his foreknowledge, chose them to bear the family likeness of his son, that he might be the eldest of a family of many brothers. He chose them long ago. When the time came, he called them. He made them righteous in his sight and then lifted them to the splendor as his own sons. The message expands on this a little bit more. And let me just read you one more translation because I think just in reading the different translations, that in and of itself is a good commentary on the meaning of the passage. But what it says is the Son, Jesus, stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives in him. Now, 
I want to pause and just say a couple of things about that. And that is, I want you to realize before we start in on this topic of sanctification, that it isn't that God's wanting to make us into some weird, super spiritual, unbearable, pain in the neck thing. No, when he's saying that he wants us to become like Jesus, I love this where... um, in the message, he says, the original and intended shape of our lives. We were created to be like that. We have distorted God's image. We have become something that he didn't want us to be. But now, as believers in Jesus, we can have that image restored. So how we get there, how the whole process works out, is what the passage is about today. Now, again, as I said earlier, Romans 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11, lays out God's plan of salvation for all people. But the emphasis shifts very concretely as we start in on chapter 12. Now remember the chapter breakdowns were not original with the text. That didn't come until hundreds and hundreds of years later. But the organization of thought is very, very strong in how it defines things. And the section of Romans 12 starts out with a Greek conjunction, O-U-V-O, and we translate it, therefore. Now this Greek Conjunction is very interesting in that, as Strong's Concordance says, it is a conjunction indicating that something follows from another necessarily. Now, what that means is what we're going to talk about now is the necessary result of what came before. Before, in 11 chapters, Paul has talked about our salvation. And so the necessary result of that is what follows. And then here is what Paul says this is. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, a living sacrifice, often in the New Testament, it talks about, it uses this kind of language because it says, it, it's constantly saying how Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for us. We are purchased, we're paid for, we're bought with a price. We are now theologically dead to sin, and we're supposed to be alive to Christ, and we need to live it out that way. We need to do that too. We need to remember every single day It isn't just some big emotional thing on Sunday. Sometimes we incorrectly say that we go to the worship service. Well, yeah, it is. But remember, Paul is saying that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. So living our lives in the way God wants us to be, that's the best way we can worship. Sunday morning is part of it. And it's a wonderful part of it, but that isn't the only time we worship. Now, not only do we present ourselves in that way, do we think of ourselves in that way, but it goes on to say we should be transformed. That means to live in that reality. 
we're transformed, it goes on to say, by the renewing of our mind. And this is so important because we have to learn to think in new ways. As a Christian, the world around us does not think godly thoughts. I mean, that's not exactly a newsflash. The standards of the world, uh, media, other people, maybe even things that we learned growing up, family patterns, these are not the way God wants us to live. Well, how are we ever going to learn them? We learn them only through the Bible. And that's why it is so important that every single day you spend time in God's Word. You can read it. You can also listen to it. This is one of the things that I I really recommend that people do if you haven't done it before, is listen to the Bible. Every single one of you on your phone, if you don't have it right now, download the YouVersion app. I love it. I've, I've got that on my Bible. I it's, it's just so neat that it's always there if I'm waiting or, you know, I get upset or whatever. I can always turn to my little YouVersion and look up verses. I love to listen to it when I'm on the exercise bike. There's just a lot of ways that you can use it. So you don't have to sit down with a big old Bible and read it all the time. Now, I like to do that too. But the whole point is you want God's Word being the default way of thinking in your life. And the only way that you can be conformed to the image of Jesus, that you can think the thoughts God God wants you to think, that you can be everything that He wants you to become is if you do that. So let's go on to see what else the Bible says we're supposed to do. So Paul goes on and he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. He goes on to talk about how we're all parts of the body of Christ and different people have different gifts. He says, uh, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, everybody has theoretically a specific gift, and that's something that we can all grow into. But even if we don't know exactly what our gift is, maybe we're young in the faith, we can still practice the characteristics that he talks about to be encouraging to be generous, to be diligent. Oh, that is such a needed characteristic. And to be cheerful, whether we like it or not. And that, that I know, that's a hard one for me. Um, I, you know, I sometimes talk about how I come from this German Mennonite family, and my, and my mother's side was Mennonite, my father's side was Catholic, and, you know, I though I love both traditions, they're kind of not known for being the most cheery. Um, I sometimes say I have reasons to feel guilt in every single area of life from my heritage. But the Lord you know, he, he says, be cheerful anyway. That's what we're supposed to do. We must master our emotions, not let them master us in the Christian life. And then he goes on to talk about how we are to live a practical life of love. The passage continues, love must be sincere. Hate what's evil. Cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. 
practice hospitality. You see, we can't just say we love people. That's such a vague, undefined term. We need to help them when we have the ability, and we can always pray for each other. That's one of the most wonderful things that we can do. And we need to always have a really good attitude when we're doing that. One of the things, too, I wanted to just kind of look at a little more closely is he says, be joyful in hope. The whole idea of being joyful and being a command, that's something that I, you know, I do have a hard time doing that. So I decided, like I do everything else, when I don't really understand something, I look things up on it. And what, um, when I looked it up, the Greek and all of that, I think I found some kind of interesting things. First of all, it froms, comes from the Greek word Cairo, and it means to be cheerful. In other words, filled with cheer. It also, and I love this definition, to be calmly happy. I like that because, uh, you know, for me, for many people, not, I'm not an overly emotional person or overly enthusiastic. I like the idea of being calmly happy. And some other places that it's used in the New Testament, the same verse, it is where in John 16, 22, Jesus says, now is your time of grief. He's talking about, he's, he's just getting ready to go to the cross. But he says, but I will see you again and you will rejoice. It's the same word and no one will take your, away your joy. It's the same verse that we talked about a few weeks ago in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 where it says to rejoice always. And when I think of being giddy and blah, blah, blah and upbeat and all that, I think, I can't do that. But calmly happy, that's doable for me. <laughs> Be cheerful no matter what is another way that that's translated in the message. And again, being cheerful, I, I like that. Um I think in some ways, and we've talked about this in my Sunday school class, it's kind of a sanctified fake it until you make it. Sometimes we might want to be negative, but we need to work on looking at the positive, saying things that are positive, not in any kind of a, oh, we're going to make that a reality, but it really does orient us to the goodness of God when we look for what is positive, even in some of the most challenging situations. If nothing else, this is training us to become more like Christ, no matter how difficult our situation might be. And just a reminder to you, in the Christian life, many things we do as a discipline, as an act of our will, and if we do them enough, they will become a habit. Different things are, are hard for some people, easy for others. For example, for me, one of the easiest things in the world is to teach. I love to teach. I don't have any problem at all. You know, put me up in front of five people, 500, I don't care, you know. Um, that's always been really easy for me. People say, oh, I hate to get up in front of people. And I go, oh, I don't, I don't understand that at all. But there are many other things that are really, really hard for me. Being constantly cheerful is one of them. <laughs> um, they're just different things that different ones of us struggle with. So he then goes on to talk about how not you know, not everybody's going to appreciate what you do. He says, you know, just bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Uh, live in harmony with each other. Don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Maybe you have things that are hard for you and somebody else doesn't and they get on your case for it or maybe you're really cheerful and somebody's really grumpy around you and they might not even know the Lord or just all kinds of things. And 
the Lord just tells us in this passage and so many others, this wonderful verse where it says, If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then he goes on with these, this familiar passage, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, if we don't follow this passage, if we retaliate, we judge, we criticize, we slander people, you see, we're putting ourselves in God's position then. God says, I'm the one who decides who gets punished, who doesn't. And when you gossip about other people, or you go, oh, they did this really bad thing, or whatever, you know, you're sounding just like some bratty little kid that's running to a parent and saying, did you know what my brother did? No. You know, usually the parent knows, knows better than you do. And the parent will take care of that. And we need to remember that in the body of Christ. Now, this does not mean we should be a doormat. I've really struggled with this because I I work um, to support my ministry habits. I work a very demanding secular job and I work with it's it's in the construction industry and it's with some really sometimes very challenging people and I run my business in a, I try very hard and and I'm very respected in what I do because I'm I'm honest and all of those kinds of things but sometimes I have to be very tough with people and I try really hard to not be nasty or to be vicious or to be whiny or something like that. But just recently, I had to to challenge someone rather strongly. I really prayed about it first, and I, I really thought about it. And I thought, you know, I, I want to act like Jesus did. Because he, when there was time to challenge someone, he didn't get ugly about it. But he just said, you know, this is <laughs> this is not how you should live or this is whatever. And so it was really, um, it, it worked out really well because I was able to to go to this person and say, you know, what you are, are saying, you know, this is, you know, what I did in my side of it. You know, this happened, this happened, this happened, and you were not correct here. And, you know, but I wasn't icky about it. And it was really good because this is a very proud um some challenging individual and he ended up apologizing to me and saying you know you were right I'm sorry you know I just I didn't approach this correctly so it doesn't mean we we be a doormat but we really work on things we really work hard to um, as the Bible says speak the truth in love we don't whine we don't go to another person we don't go to a third party Um, we speak the truth in love to the person that we need to deal with. And that's, um, that in many ways uh, can be one of the kindest things we can do for people. I know if I've done something wrong, I really appreciate it for somebody to come to me and say, you know, that was not probably really smart for you to do that. Or that wasn't very kind. I didn't, I didn't take it very well. Or why did you do that? I would so much rather someone come to me than for me to find out about it third hand or, or whatever. So that's how we need to treat others. So, um, but again, you know, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. There are some people you simply have to walk away from. And Jesus did that. He says there are times when you just walk away from a city, from a ministry, from whatever. You shake the dust off your feet. If people do not respond, 
to you again. You don't gossip about him. You don't malign him. You don't slander him. You walk away. So going on in Romans 13, it says we should be good citizens. Um, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. And keep in mind that Paul, and this is, we're subject to authority. The rest of scripture also tells us unless it directly conflicts with our Christian faith. And then as Peter said, we need to obey God rather than man. But Paul himself put himself under Roman authority, and this was one of the most corrupt and evil governments ever, and he was ultimately killed by them. But he did not say, you know, overthrow the government, he didn't whatever. The thing, though, about governmental things and about politics, and particularly in our tremendously contentious world, is this is never to be our primary concern. Yes, we are good citizens, but we need to remember, as it says in Hebrews 11.13, when it talks about all the heroes of faith, it said, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And then again, in another translation, it said, each one of these people died, not yet having in hand but was promised, but what was promised, but still believing. How did they do it? They saw it a long way off in the distance, waved their greeting, and accepted the fact that they were transients in this world. People who live this way make it plain that they're looking for their true home. If they were homesick for the old country, they would have gone back any time they wanted. But they're after a better country than that, heaven country. You can see why God was so proud of them and has a city waiting for them. You see, this world is not our home, like the old hymn says. We're to be a good citizen here, but this isn't our focus. Heaven is our focus. That's the city we're moving towards. That's the city that we are truly citizens. And then he goes on to talk about the importance of love, and he keeps repeating that, repeating it. And he says, keep out of debt altogether, except the perpetual debt of love we owe to one another. And I I like that, the translation of that, because in one of the commentaries I was reading, I was I was teaching um, out of this passage in another context a while back, and it talked about how debt, how the one debt that we can never repay, that we're never done paying, is the debt of love. Every other debt we can get caught up on, but not the debt of love. And then he says to wake up! Do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, we will so often focus on don't, you know, carouse, don't get drunk, don't be sexually immoral, etc., etc. But he also adds not in dissension and jealousy. Sometimes I think if you've progressed to a certain point in your spiritual life, we need to be very conscious of attitudinal sins. These are subtle, but they're incredibly destructive. And again, we need to be like Jesus. That saying, 
you know, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's not just an outdated saying. That is an excellent way for us to live our lives. And then he talks about if we've got our act together on this, we need to accept, we need to accept our perhaps weaker brothers and sisters. In Romans 14.1, he says, accept one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. There are so many things that are disputable. In Paul's day, it was about meat offered to idols. Today, it might be uh, to have a glass of wine, to not, to have a beer or not, to, um, you know, maybe movies. I don't know. That's not as much of a big deal as it used to be. I mean, there's all kinds of different things that people can, um, that are secondary issues. And, you know, you say, just don't get hung up on those things. And he has the ultimate reason why. You then... Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat with them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. He says, each of us will give account of himself to God. And this is so important to remember. We will stand before God someday. Now, our salvation is not in doubt. But the Bible is clear that there will be some sort of reckoning for how we lived our lives. And most commentators say that that will be, you might say, an award ceremony where some people will get lots and lots of rewards and other people, not so much. (laughs) But um, it is important how we live our lives. And we can't say on that day, well, well, look at what so-and-so did. That doesn't matter. It's what did you do? Well, you know, my parents caught, no. What did you do? Well, my situation... No. You know, you are responsible for yourself. So he goes on in verse 19. So let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. And if you're strong in the faith, in Romans 15, 1 and 2, he says, then we need to step in and lend a hand to those who falter and not just do what's most convenient for us. Strength is for service, not status. Each one of us needs to look after the good of the people around us, asking ourselves, how? can I help? That's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't make it easy for himself by avoiding people's troubles, but waited right in and helped out. You see, that's how we need to live. How can I help? Not how can I criticize and gossip about someone and just be all around nasty and snarky. No, how can we help? And More than anything else, when you're prone to criticize, turn that into a prayer. Turn it into what can be done here positively. And then Paul ends the book with asking for prayer and greetings to many people. He ends up by saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles that are contrary to the teaching you've received. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone, though, has heard about your obedience, and I rejoice because of you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan 
under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then he commends some people by name, and he does quite a bit of that early on in the book. I'm actually going to be doing a, a teaching on that Sunday at our Tuesday, I mean not Sunday, Tuesday at a Bible study, and I don't know if I'll record it or not. But that that whole section in Romans 16 is, is really neat, all the people he talks about. But he ends by saying, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. May we all be established in him and not just stop at salvation, but keep growing in our faith as we travel the road home to when we'll see our Lord face to face. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson there in downloadable PDF format and the other materials at www.bible805.com. And do subscribe to the podcast so that you won't miss out on any of them. And let your friends know about them so that they too can be encouraged as they learn more about God. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prin, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are in your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.